0: We're moving at a pace that's maybe faster than is typical. Usually uh, when we preach through the scriptures, sometimes we just take three or four or five or six verses at a time. But we're taking much larger chunks to give you a different view. I'm sure you've experienced this before, but I remember times when I chose just to read like a book of the Bible from beginning to end in one sitting. And when you do that, there's a whole new set of truths. You kind of get to see the bigger pieces that over overarch and connect the whole story. And that's a part of the purpose of what we're doing now is to go through at a bit of a clip and taking large chunks to see, I think, a whole new set of truths and how they tie together and flow together. So that's what we're doing. So let me pray for Chuck, and then he's going to teach. Holy Father, thank you for this moment in this place where your will is being done to such a high degree. It's such a relief to our spirits to be in a moment and a time and among a people who all are wanting to be in step with you and so we sense that your will could be done in an amazing way so give us ears to hear and uh thoughts to understand your truth give chuck what he needs and what he wants to share in jesus name amen amen
1: thanks son uh that was awesome i've never that's interesting my my girls call me dad and not father but it's, it's awesome thanks rick um I, I mean, you guys are getting to know Rick. I Maybe I had the privilege of getting to know him before you guys, uh, but it's your gift, man. Thank you. Uh, true gift. So um, as he said, we're in uh, Luke 17. We're picking up the story uh, halfway through chapter 17. So if you have a Bible um, or uh, some app or something, uh, open up to Luke 17. And if you don't, it's okay. We'll... we'll uh, read together on the screen, too. All the verses we'll be covering. But um, I don't know how you look at the Bible. So when you when you talk about the Bible or if you look, just say, well, this is what the Bible is or how, how you view it uh, in your mind when you approach it. But uh, one thing, uh, just piggybacking off of what Rick was talking about, one thing we have to understand that it actually is a story. Um, so if you go to the front of the book, it says, in the beginning, God created... That sounds like the beginning of a story to me, no? And then if you turn to the back, you actually read about the conclusion of the story. Now, here, here, here's the twist, though. The, the Bible is different than a movie we would go see or something like that. Um, because the Bible, although the we, it ends... <laughs> we, we, we get to the back of the the, the book... And it ends with a to be continued. The twist is, is you already know how the story ends. So it's this kind of mind-blowing reality that you're actually in the story still. And yet you know how it ends. And this shapes the Christian life, actually. Um, when we look at the, the the Scriptures in this way and we understand what the flow of thought is. And so we're, we, we understand, wow, we, we're to be continued, but we know how it's going to end. And so you find yourself in the midst of it. And then you have these questions of like, um, it starts to make sense. Why is everybody looking for purpose? Why is everybody looking for meaning? Why is, it's because you're in a story and you're you're trying to figure that out. And so as a church, um, as Colossae as a whole, we've really struggled over the last nine years. We worked really hard to try to boil down kind of our aim in the story uh, into like a phrase or a sentence. And here, here's actually what we would say. We would say our aim is basically to join God's mission of reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. That, that's how we participate in the story. That's our aim. That's our purpose. That brings meaning to us. Um, and and when, we, when we look at this, we, we look at the story of Scripture from the front to the back, And every story in between, actually, you see God as good and loving, and you see his ongoing work being that of reconciliation. In the end of the story, there is a finalized kingdom established that is outside of and beyond any influence of anything evil. So it's fully reconciled back to what we see in the beginning of the story as the Garden of Eden. You move from a garden to a city, both of which have peace, absent of evil, and that's what the story is going to be. And so we look at this, and we see that God's work, ultimately through every story, every parable, every situation in Scripture, will ultimately point to God as good and loving, and His work of reconciliation through Jesus. And this is why, as followers of Jesus, we understand how we fit into the story. And so the to be continued is us. That's where we are, and that's who we are. And so I say all of this because our study today will talk about the end of the story. It, there's people that ask questions about the end of the story. And so we start to see that there's uh, an importance here. Because if we don't understand the larger story and how God views the world and what he's doing in the world, we'll actually miss Jesus. We'll not only miss who he is and his identity in the world, but we'll miss his mission and therefore we'll miss who we are and our work as well. And so it's by gaining this larger picture that we gain a much better understanding of who we are and meaning and purpose. And so uh, it's it's tough because, um, man, our culture, church culture, Portland culture, name a culture um, that we're influenced by, and we've lost the larger story. And what inevitably has happened is, is you actually take Jesus out of the center of it, and we insert ourselves into the center of the story. And when we do that, not only will I complain a bunch or be discontent perpetually um, because life will never treat me as good as I think it should, but inherently what I'm doing is I'm inserting myself as the center, and everything should revolve around me and my best, you know, for the best interest of my ways, and I, I remove God. And when we do that, removing God and Jesus out of the center, we're lost. We're searching for meaning. I'm trying to find my calling in life. And what's that thing I'm supposed to be doing? And I'm at the center of this whole thing. And today, I just want to try to encourage us to maybe take a step back and maybe let the Scriptures give us, and Jesus through the Scriptures give us, the larger focus of God in His story, that He is the center of it. Jesus is the center of the story. And we play a part, but unless we get that focus, we start to lose it. So what I want to do is I want to start us off in chapter 17, verse 11, where we get a a small picture of the bigger story, of who God is in his work of reconciliation. We pick it up in chapter 17, verse 11. Here's, here's where uh, Luke brings us. On the way to Jerusalem. Now, if you were to look at a map, you have... Galilee in the north. Then you work your way down to Samaria. You're going to come to just um, in a little bit when we pick up Luke again. uh, You'll come into Jericho. And then I'll head west a little bit into Jerusalem. So right now we're in Samaria. All of what we've been talking about up to this point in Luke, all the shoulders that Jesus is bumping into has all been Galilee. Now he's moving toward. And we know the story of Luke. Ultimately, he'll end up in Jerusalem, and he'll offer himself selflessly on the cross in Jerusalem. But we're not there yet in the story. So he's in Samaria. He was was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, I know all of you have really studied Leviticus. So as you remember, um, (laughs) uh, Leviticus, gosh, it's a great book. You should read it, actually. Um, But if you were to go to Leviticus 13 specifically, maybe you want to do that today, actually. What you have is people with skin diseases, a variety of skin diseases, and it's all summarized as leprosy. So leprosy isn't just what we would think of as leprosy, it's any skin disease. And so in Leviticus 13, you see that if you have a skin disease, you're supposed to go and be examined by a priest. And depending on what the priest examines would depend on how you would go about receiving healing and what you would do. And so Jesus says, go to the priest. Now, here's the beauty of it. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, as if he wasn't before. Samaritans already viewed as outsiders. Now he's a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, what's what's interesting about this is this ultimately is a picture of someone who has been unfortunately affected by life outside of God's design. So what we see is, and throughout the scriptures, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that Jesus is constantly known for spending time with such people. Those people that are most negatively affected by life outside of God's design, outside of the Garden of Eden, and in the to-be-continued stage. Why? Why? Well, Luke especially is painting this picture that Jesus is the perfect expression of God's goodness and love and the ongoing work of reconciliation, restoring the world back to God's designed order. And so when we look at this, this is God's aim is to reconcile all things. The people have neglected this person, but the goodness of God remains. And this is the story. This is the story of the Scriptures. This is the story of Luke is telling. This is the story that Jesus is living into. And now there are there are some people that are going to ask Jesus a question about the end of the story. Here's what they say, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees, now if you're newer to the Bible, they're just good moral church-going folks. They think of themselves a little more highly than they ought to. And we we don't like to say we identify with them because of that reason. Um, but they're just good moral church going pious people and they know the story and here's what they say being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come he answered them the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say look here it is or there for behold the kingdom of God is in the midst of you here, here's what what we get, the question is based on an understanding of what God promised. So if we revert back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 3, you see a promise. We've talked about this. The promise is, the king would crush the head of the serpent. That's what you read in Genesis 3. So if you know the basic story of Adam and Eve and the snake, they succumb to the deceitfulness of the serpent. And God says, I will send a king to crush the head of that. The insinuation, the implication, and the the reality was is that God is promising to bring a king that would establish a kingdom with no evil influence anymore. These people understand the story. And so they ask Jesus, how do we know when the finalized kingdom will be established? How do we know that? And He says, it's in the midst of you. Now, when we look at this, um, he's on one hand he's saying like, "Yeah, you're not going to see it coming and plan for it and figure it all out." We're going to see that in just a minute. On the other hand, he's also saying like, "It's in the midst of you." Uh, in other words, Jesus is very careful, and you're going to see this. He's very careful to not get caught up on the rat wheels of trying to figure all that out, but also just saying, actually. It's on display in your life today. And he just modeled that with the lepers. It's on display. It's in your midst. Now, when we, when we look at this, this can get super confusing, So, especially in our world. And so Jesus turns to his followers, and he addresses them directly with a little bit of commentary. So just so they don't get caught up in all this, you know, thinking about the end times kind of stuff, Here's what he says. Watch this. And he said to his disciples, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. You ever been there where you're like, gosh, I just wish Jesus would come back, and then it doesn't happen? Well, you're living that story. And they will look, they will say to you, they, whoever they, they they.com, they will say to you, look there. Or look, here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and the lights up the sky from the one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He's getting to this point of saying, look, it's just going to happen. You can't, you can't, there's no signs that you're going to try to figure it all out and work towards. It's just going to happen. But first, here's one thing that he makes clear. But first, he, the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In other words, before you get on to all that, let me just explain to you that I'm going to offer the perfect expression of God's goodness and love so that reconciliation can actually happen. Can we just focus on that? That's going to happen. Now, that blew up their understanding of the king because they thought the king would come and overpower not submit himself for their behalf. So he's blowing up his followers' minds and as you'll see in the coming weeks they have they don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. But he's blowing up their thinking. He says I'm going to first model God's goodness and love for the purpose of reconciliation. So we get to verse 26. He says this just as it was in the days of Noah so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. So he's drawing up this kind of comparison. We're going to see abruptness being that. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur Rain from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He's talking about the abruptness. These religious people are trying to figure out, how do I know that the, fi- the finalized, reconciled kingdom is going to be established? How can I prepare for it? How do I know it's close? He says, it's just going to happen. He's trying to get them to focus on today. Rat wheel today. Here's what he says. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. If you remember uh, or if you read Genesis 19, God says he's going to destroy a city. And they're told, his people are told to leave. And Lot's wife turns back. And if you read Genesis 19, she's turned to salt. So in other words, Jesus is going, just keep going forward. Just just keep moving. Remember Lot's wife. It doesn't work out well. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, speaking of food prep. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? Like, where are they going? Like, what what is that going to look like? Here's how he responds. He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, he doesn't answer the question. That's totally Jesus. What is he doing? He goes, Look, when it happens, you'll know. When you see a bunch of vultures, you're not questioning what happened, you just know. So Jesus is masterful at being very careful at just keeping people focused on what actually matters. Now, they're concerned about all these things. And what's fascinating is is that he's emphasizing the suddenness of these events through Noah and Lot. And verse 37 just means it's going to be a public affair. You just know. You'll know. Now, there's much conversation um, about how and when all this will happen. You can find all kinds of charts and diagrams and Beliefs from all kinds of different godly people. And if that excites you, awesome, discuss it. But may we not miss the blatantly obvious things. First off, Jesus is saying that he is going to be the expression of the selfless love of God. He's painting that picture. God's ongoing work is that of reconciliation. And it's out of his goodness and his self-giving love that that's going to happen. And Jesus will model that on the cross. This is the point that he's getting across, ultimately. Secondly, and that blows up their mind, because they think that the king that's promised is just going to overpower everybody, not humbly submit to them for their behalf in the work of reconciliation. So he's really messing with their minds. He also says, secondly, that this, it says the son of man will be revealed. In other words, Jesus is going to come back. Thirdly, Nobody knows when or how. And Jesus apparently says, those people that are claiming to know that don't follow them. So that's what we know. That's like the blatantly obvious things from the text and the commentary of Jesus. But the whole picture is likened to these two Old Testament stories. And I think there's some some things to realize here. Because every parable, every story contains the whole story of the scriptures in it. And he points to one for instance, story of Noah. Now, if you, if you were to read Genesis chapter six and understand why the flood happens, it's actually kind of horrifying. It's fascinating that we paint Noah's ark on the walls of children's rooms. It's uh, that's unbelievable. It, it's it's crazy that it's a cartoonized thing. It's horrifying, um, in in, it, in in many different ways. But when you see why God does it, it makes a lot of sense. What's revealed through the Scripture is, is that God, as good and loving, looks down at the intentions of our hearts, mankind's hearts, and here's what he finds. It's only evil all the time. That's why he does it. The story of Noah is about God evicting evil out of the world. That's the story. And that story contains the whole larger story of that we're living in right now, of God's ultimate work. And so they're asking about the end times. And Jesus is addressing this by painting this picture that ultimately God is about, in Noah, was about rebooting mankind in a sense, giving it a fresh start, painting a picture of his goodness and his desires for creation. And he's pointing them to that end. Because when we, when we take God as good and loving out of the center of the story and then we insert ourselves as good and loving, you know what we do? We read the stories of Noah and we think of God as cruel. Because we're first, we, we matter most. And we're good and loving, and we question God's goodness and love. But if you just know the story, it makes actually a lot of sense. One of the, the contexts that most uh, many people talk about from like a skeptic's perspective is this story that you read about in the book of Joshua, actually, where God sends his people across the Jordan River to take a city, take over a city of Jericho and ultimately the entire land of Canaan. And as a, if I insert myself as good and loving into the story, I can easily become t- to see uh, God as cruel. How could God send his people in there to kill all these people? But if you just know the elementary understanding of the story of Scripture, you don't ask that question. Because if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 9, God tells his people why he's doing this. Here's what he says says do not say in your heart after the lord your god has thrust them out before you it is because of my righteousness that the lord has brought me in, the, in to possess this land whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the lord is driving them out before you you see the same story in the book of in the story of noah god's driving out the evil and the wickedness in the world he says not don't, don't think that this is because you're good and you're loving It's because it's the evil. This is the story. It's painting a picture of the end of the story, actually. Not because of your righteousness nor the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers in the beginning of the story to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God's promises are going to come true. Not only will the king come and establish a fully reconciled kingdom in the end, but I'm going to give you small pictures of this that will ultimately culminate in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that will lead to the established kingdom of that king. So when you look at it, it's actually God is good. God is loving. And Jesus, is all he's doing is explaining The story through how he lives of a good and loving God. And he says, just focus on today. Be here. I'm going to selflessly give myself. And he's going to ask them a very, very pointed question. Because knowing that his followers can run on rat wheels of all this stuff and try to dissect everything, which is, you know, there's beauty to that. But Jesus has a way of keeping it simple. Does he not? Here's what he does. So he told them. Who's them? He's talking to his his people, his disciples, people that have self-identified as followers of him. Here's what he says, and here's why. To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So prayer is a, a sign of dependence on God, and he wants them to be encouraged in their dependence. So he said this. In a certain city... There was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. Like, just get her off my back. And the Lord said, so here's Jesus' commentary on his parable. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. He's going to offer justice. He's going to ultimately offer justice. Here's what he says. And will not God give justice to his elect, his people, who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, here's the question, will he find faith on earth? See, the story of the judge is ultimately about declaring God as trustworthy and just. That's what the story ultimately points to in its simplest form. And now, um, he's asking, will there be faith when I come back? You see, at the the core of our faith is this thing called trust. And, And trust is this idea that we actually believe, we trust God as good, we trust God as loving as the scriptures speak of him, and we trust that God has our best interest in mind and therefore knows better than we do. That's at the core of our faith. And so this idea of being encouraged that God is good and loving and just and praying independence on him, Jesus saying, look, you can talk about the end all you want. I'm asking you the question, when the Son of Man comes back, will we find that kind of faith? So again, he's getting him to focus on today. Will I find faith? Will I find trust? the goodness and love of God. It's the humility and dependence that Jesus is describing as the character of his followers in the story. The to be continued, it's the humility and dependence. That's our posture. And so he compares that posture of humility and dependence to a very arrogant one now. Again, this is all one conversation. So this is what he says. He also told this parable to some. Some of who? His disciples who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So they are good. They are the center of the story. He says, two men went up into the temple. It sounds like a bad joke, right? (laughs) One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, now this is fascinating because the Pharisees are hearing him, but he's talking to his people. So talk about tension. Right, just to think you you just left a meeting uh, at with, with the neighbors or whatever. You're in a meeting, uh, you're talking, and somebody does something weird, and you turn to someone else. It talks about them right in front of them, and gives them gives the people you're talking to a lesson about how not to be like the person sitting on your right. That's the tension. That's crazy. So he says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Here's what he's praying: God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Here's the comparison. But the tax collector, the, the furthest outside of the religious understanding of what a religious person would look like, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's Jesus' commentary. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you now have this simplicity of just kind of, look, the end's going to happen. God's promises will come true. My question to you is, am I going to find the faith of the prayerful, humble dependence when I come back? You don't know what's going to happen. Can't prep for it. It's going to happen. So now he has two postures. One called self-righteous, where he's at the center of the story. He is good. He's just thankful. He's not like other people that don't understand it. And then you have not the self-righteous person, but I would say the self-aware person. That he's actually aware of God being good and loving and where he is in a posture. So, another way of looking at this is the Pharisee, the self righteous person, sees himself as good. The tax collector sees God as good inherently. And there's a trust, there's a humility, there's a dependence, there's an unsophisticated understanding. It's simple. Jesus has a way of just breaking it down. This is the Christian story God is good and loving. And his work is that of reconciliation. And we can dissect things all we want. But our faith should be somewhat unsophisticated. It should be pretty simple. And that's where Luke, before the mood changes, Luke gives us this final picture. Now they, whoever they were, bringing in even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The, the older we get, the more adult-like our thinking and our theology and our understanding of the Bible and all that stuff gets. But the older we get, the more childlike our faith should become. And Jesus is very careful to push on this and to get us to the place where we understand this, that God is good and so is the story. We can try to create our own story and put ourselves in the center of it. But inevitably, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to take Jesus out of it first off. And then we're going to end up complaining and being discontent because life will never treat us the way that we think we deserve. And then it's a different story. The beauty about the good news of God is, is that the story isn't about us at the center. It's about God is good and loving. And we play a part in the story. But the pictures that, that were given to play the part are this, the leper, the person that has a need for God's work of reconciliation very practically in his life. We see a widow who has obvious relational needs. And this culture would have had monetary leads because she would not have worked. We see a tax collector, the exact opposite of what you would think of as a good, moral, church-going, religious person. But he's humble and he's dependent. And then you see a child who's completely unsophisticated in the way they trust a parent, unsophisticated in the way that they depend on a parent. And he says, this is what you should be like. And it's with that posture that I want to invite you to the tables. People that we understand that God is the center, Jesus is the center, he is the king of the story. And that we come to him understanding his goodness and love. We're going to take the bread and dip it in the juice the wine and we're going to say thank you for your work of reconciliation that you've modeled for us that you're doing in our lives ongoing and if if you're bold enough would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you live into that story of God at the center let me pray for us Father, Son, Holy Spirit God, we're so grateful for your goodness and for your love. And um, we come here today, we acknowledge your goodness. And we also just want to say to you, we acknowledge our need for your ongoing work of reconciliation in our own lives. We want you to, the same storyline of kind of evicting evil out. We want you to evict evil out of our own lives. We looked at these stories of Jericho and, and Noah and and ultimately to the cross, and we just say, God, we invite you into our own lives to restore us to your designed order, to help us understand who we are in the sight of you at the center as a good and loving God. Holy Spirit, would you guide us and direct us towards the ways of Jesus and to understanding him better. We come to you, Father, as we sing, as we give in the boxes perhaps, Most importantly, as we remember you, Jesus, the gift of your body and your blood, as we remember your selflessness on our behalf, we come to you, Father, in his name, the name of Jesus, the King, the center of the story. It's Because of that, we pray that you're honored.